Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. Today's tale is set on a freezing cold morning, 57 metres above the ground, in Paris, France. The date, February 4th, 1912. Our subject? One unfortunate soul we'll come to discuss in a few minutes. Before I even begin this tale, I needs must take you all on a flight of fancy. Let's go buzz a few historical rooftops. Human flight has been a near-universal obsession in human societies for almost as long as we've had myths. Just pick a culture and tales emerge. The Greeks had the Corinthian hero Bellerophon, who tamed and rode Pegasus, the winged horse. They also had Daedalus, the engineer held captive by King Minos. Daedalus built a magnificent pair of wings held together by wax, then managed to fly from Crete to Naples. His unfortunate son, Icarus, flew too high on his wings. Finding out the hard way, mortals should never fly too close to the sun. His wings melted, Icarus tumbled to his death below. The Persians, whose Zoroastrian god Ahura Mazda is little more than a massive pair of wings, believe their mythical shah, Kai Kaos, built an eagle-powered throne and flew the contraption all the way to China. In Islam, Muhammad made a night flight from Mecca to Jerusalem and back on the winged steed Borak. Maori legend tells of the demigod Tawaki, who either climbed a giant vine or flew on a kite to the tenth level of heaven. English lore tells of a King Bladud, the mythical 9th century BC father of Shakespeare's King Lear, having magically cured himself of leprosy in the town of Bath. Bladud built himself a giant pair of wings, then flew back to his ancestral homeland in Troy. He ran into some trouble, quite literally, when he slammed into the Trojan walls, dying from the blunt force trauma. Hindu, Sanskrit and Jain texts all mention Vaimana, flying cities, in their folklore. Given this obsession to soar like an eagle, it shouldn't surprise anyone that our species did attempt to take to the skies. The earliest attempts seem nearly as mad as the myths. In 559 AD, Yuan Huangto, captive son of a king of the Northern Wei, a Chinese kingdom, was forcibly tied to a giant kite from a tower. He survived the flight, but died a few years later of malnutrition, still a captive to the kite flyers. In 875 AD, the Andalusian polymath Abbas ibn Thermus was said to have flown a few hundred yards in a glider of his own design. As the tale is told, the contraption was something like a large pair of wings. Many writers with expertise in aviation consider this the first legitimate human flight in history, though it was not completely successful. When Firmus finally landed, he landed badly, injuring himself. In the 11th century, Elmer of Malmesbury, a Benedictine monk with knowledge of Firmus's flight, attempted the same by jumping from the top of Malmesbury Abbey with some kind of glider attached. He survived the ordeal and appears to have glided a hundred yards or more before crashing to the ground. While a handful of polymaths, notably Roger Bacon and of course Leonardo da Vinci, hypothesized flying machines without ever actually building one, 
A handful of intrepid inventors did try their hand at a flying machine. Between the 1480s and 1853, somewhere in the order of 50 flying machines were tested. All but a dozen badly injured or killed their pilots. A few may have glided some small distance, but for the most part don't qualify as having achieved controlled flight. Now our tale of history in aviation takes a huge leap forward in 1799. This was the year an English baronet named George Cayley entered the race. By working out the laws behind aerodynamics, he sketched a design for a glider that was capable of flight. After unsuccessfully politicking for a society for aerodynamics, and half a century's worth of tweaks and adjustments, including an 1848 glider which flew like a kite with somebody else's ten-year-old boy in it, Cayley successfully flew a glider across the moors of Scarborough. While technically his coachman, unnamed to history, did, and was so terrified by the ordeal he handed in his notice that same day. Cayley, like fellow inventor William Henson, theorised a heavier-than-air machine could take to the air more successfully with a propeller driven by an internal combustion engine. But both men were hamstrung by the limits of the technology available to them. Yet again, the story takes flight with the appearance of internal combustion engines in the mid-1860s. In the 1870s, French inventor Alphonse Pinard makes a model plane with a propeller and wind-up torsion engine. It flew hundreds of feet before running out of steam. Clement Ader, another French inventor, made a glider with a built-in engine. Over the following 17 years, he took it up on a handful of tethered flights, essentially getting it airborne, but unable to fly anywhere due to the ropes. Felix de Temple fails to launch a monoplane, pushing it down a ski ramp in 1874. This was the first failed attempt to launch a powered airplane. Frenchman Victor Tatan made another model in 1879 with twin propellers and a tiny internal combustion engine. Tethered to a stick, it took off and flew in circles till it ran out of fuel. A host of other inventors, the Lillenfall brothers, John J. Montgomery, Alexander Mosiaski, even machine gun entrepreneur Hiram Maxim made machines that edged closer to powered flight. Now this continued till March 31, 1903 when a young farmer and inventor named Richard Pierce made a powered flight of several hundred metres. He made a second flight later that year, witnessed by half the village of Waitoki, New Zealand, this time staying aloft for a few kilometres before crashing into a gorse bush. Pierce was, of course, a dead end in the tale. All development flowed from the Wright brothers' successful flight at Kitty Hawk, December 17, 1903. And yes, I'm ignoring other claimants like Gustave Whitehead and Alberto Santos Dumont for exactly that same reason. What's more, the Timaru Herald dug up an interview with Pierce in 1911, which suggests his flight may have been after 1909, and at the earliest, after the 1904 World's Fair. Though all fairness, Pierce was suffering from debilitating mental illnesses at the time, and would be institutionalised the rest of his life while many eyewitnesses knew exactly how old they were when they saw him fly. Orville and Wilburight officially flew a motorised plane first in December 1903. Others soon followed suit, and an industry was born. In 1912, a new challenge emerged. 
If you're sending increasing numbers of people into the sky, in machines that are apt to break down on occasion, what measures are you putting in place to save these people? Now this is where our protagonist, Franz Reichelt, comes into focus. Balancing precariously on the edge of the 187-foot-high first floor of the Eiffel Tower. Franz Reichelt was born in Wegstadt, Bohemia, modern-day Czech Republic, on 16th October 1878. Moving to Paris in 1898, he set up a dressmaking shop, which catered largely to Austrian tourists on holiday in Paris. Unmarried, he lived alone on a third-floor apartment on Rue Gailon. In 1909, Reichelt found a new calling after a spate of aviation fatalities left him aghast. One presumes the September 1909 deaths of Eugene Lefebvre and Ferdinand Ferber, the second and third people, to die in a powered aircraft, respectively. He decided a parachute must be invented to give these flying men a fighting chance. The parachutes were not an entirely new concept. Professor of Technology Louis-Sebastien Lenormand coined the term in 1783 when he exhibited his first model. Safely jumping from atop Montpellier Observatory, Lenormand envisioned the parachute as a safety device for use in burning buildings. Others, including André-Jacques Garner, saw an alternate use in hot air ballooning. Although most of these devices were fixed, they couldn't be folded away, and they were bulky, and so no great use to pilots. In 1910, Aero Club de France offered a reward of 5,000 francs to any inventor who could build a fold-away parachute which could be used from a plane. Reichel quickly submitted his prototype wingsuit. Soon after the deaths of Lefebvre and Ferber, he made a suit with a canopy that, when opened, would unleash a giant pair of silk wings. He tested it by throwing Taylor's dummies out of a fifth-floor window above his own apartment. The initial tests were successful, but when he took his wingsuit to the Aero Club, they turned him away. The judges believed the canopy was too weak to withstand the jump from a plane. And it didn't help either that the device weighed 70 kilograms. In 1911, the Aero Club increased their prize to 10,000 francs, adding the stipulations the parachute must not weigh more than 25 kilograms, and that the prize must be claimed within three years. And suddenly, the race was on. In 1911, Grant Morton, a 54-year-old stuntman who made his career by jumping out of hot air balloons, made the world's first skydive, jumping from a Wright Model B near Venice Beach, California. He made the jump with a thrower-type chute better suited to hot air balloons. Californian balloonist Charles Broadwick and Russian inventor Gleb Kotelnikov were both making huge strides with knapsack parachute designs. It was also likely Reichel felt pressured by fellow Frenchman Gaston Hervieux, who tested a number of dummies attached to chutes from the first floor of the Eiffel Tower in 1911. As Reichel pared down his materials to make the 25kg cutoff, making a succession of failures, Hervieux threw a model from the tower, which landed softly below. Thinking his own dummies were responsible for his sudden run of bad luck, in 1911 Franz Reichelt donned the suit twice himself, 
and leapt to the ground thirty feet below. On the first occasion, he fell heavily into a pile of hay and walked away uninjured. On the second occasion, he broke his leg. All the while, he continued to petition authorities to allow him to test his dummies from the Eiffel Tower as well. He was now convinced the fault lay not in the design, but in the height he was testing the suit from. If he could get a few hundred feet higher, the chute was bound to work. Which brings us back round to February 4th, 1912. The temperature was an icy zero Celsius, and there was a wicked crosswind. Franz Reichelt finally had permission to toss a dummy off the ledge, while assorted press milled around on a nearby Champ de Meur. With an unyielding belief in his suit, and knowing that this was going to be make or break, Reichelt climbed the guardrail. For 40 seconds he stared down. Failure meant certain death, but to succeed meant plaudits beyond his imagination. Just think of all the lives a wingsuit could save in the future. Think of all the money he can make. His name could be remembered for eternity, just like the Wright brothers. And of course he'd be 10,000 francs better off. So, three, two, one... A body in freefall plummets at 9.8 metres per second per second until it reaches terminal velocity. That's a cruising speed of around 55 metres a second, 200 kilometres an hour. On an online splat calculator, it estimates his fall time at 3.1 seconds. About this long. No doubt this was enough time for this poor man to realise his suit had failed miserably. Franz Reichelt fell like a stone, hitting the ground below with a dull, heavy thud. Film footage of the incident shows a group of men picking up the body, then casually measuring a sizable crater he left behind. And needless to say, Mr. Reichelt did not win the prize. But while it's tempting, and indeed a little callous, to think of Franz Reichelt's tale as little more than a Darwin Award in the making, I feel obliged to point out this quixotic little story is slightly more than that. Whether motivated out of a genuine need to help others, or by that big paycheck, what's for certain is he lived at the tail end of a time when some private citizen could invent the next big thing in the back of a shed. Right up until the post-war period, when the USA had money to throw into, well, anything one could imagine, really. A lot of people, a little like Franz Reichelt, built our world from the sheds, spare rooms and kitchen tables. I desperately want to remember him as a pioneer more than a punchline, though I fear the tides of history are against me on that one. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written by me, Simone Whitlow. Produced and all music, yours truly. Visit the blog historyandimagination.com. Links to social media and liner notes. We have a Facebook and a Twitter, even a Pinterest. We also have a Patreon if you wish to help support the show and keep it going. If you have enjoyed the show, please leave a positive review. We'll be back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.